Welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast, the podcast that aspires to support and inspire people to move, exercise and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. The podcast where we share the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We know that many people are scared to stay active during cancer treatment. We know that for some, cancer can take away the hope that comes from dreaming of a future. And we know many people diagnosed with cancer feel isolated and lonely. We hope that by sharing the stories of others finding their way through cancer, the Move Against Cancer podcast will provide hope, support and a sense of empowerment to anyone living with and beyond cancer. Welcome to episode three of the Move Against Cancer podcast. My name is Gemma Hillier Moses and I'm the founder of Move Charity. So I guess you probably want to know a little bit about me. So I have a big love for all things running. I love to chat, as you will probably be able to find out from this podcast, and I love connecting with others and being able to share their stories. When Lucy, Georgie and I decided to set up this podcast, we had no idea what to expect at all. So thank you to everybody for all your wonderful feedback, um, your love and your support, and to our incredible guests for their time. By the way, what a lineup to launch our very first podcast. No wonder we were slightly nervous about this. But we are really excited to see where this podcast goes. Um, none of us are podcast experts, but hopefully it will insp- support, inspire and empower people to join us in moving against cancer. So this is a very special episode. This week, I'm joined by Marathon Queen and former world record holder Paula Ratcliffe and her awesome daughter, Isla. So in 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Isla was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer at the age of 14. It is the first time outside of the Sunday Times article that Isla did a couple of months ago that Isla has spoke publicly about her cancer diagnosis. And so I just feel incredibly honoured and privileged to be able to share her story. As a family, they have been through such an incredibly tough year. In the Sunday Times article, Paula said that if she could give advice to anybody who is going through a cancer diagnosis or a tough time in life, it would be this. And Paula said, it helps to focus on each day at a time, then each treatment block, and to celebrate the small things and to accept that yes, it is unfair and it does completely suck, but you can get through it and you are stronger than you think you are. Support your mind as well as your body and don't be afraid to lean on others. And they are very wise words from Paula. So I'm really looking forward to talking to them both today. So welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast, Paula and Isla. It's an absolute pleasure to have you both on. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. How are you guys right now? Let's set the scene for everybody who's listening to the podcast. Uh, we are at home in Monaco, so probably have to apologise in advance. They are warming up for the historic Grand Prix. Um, so there's a few cars revving up going past. Um, it's a little bit different this year because crowds obviously aren't what they normally are. And usually it's hard this time of year to get in and out of Monaco and it's quite easy today. When is it the, uh, the weekend, the Grand Prix, is it? The historic Grand Prix is this weekend. Yeah. And then the um, actual Grand Prix is the... Because we, we get days off school yeah, for yeah. the Grand Prix. Oh, I think it's the 20th or 21st of May. So it, it's another three weeks or so till then. Days off school is quite a nice bonus. <laughs> yeah, because people can't get into Monaco. So they just 
cancelled school. Yeah, oh, that sounds like a great place to live. <laughs> three or four of the schools are actually right in the circuit as well, so they've, they've got no chance of getting to and from school. Brill. So, Isla, you've been at a hockey camp the last couple of days, haven't you? Yeah. And how, how's that been? Have you been enjoying getting stuck into that camp again? Yeah, I really, I really enjoy hockey, but sometimes it gets like really, really tiring though. I can imagine because you were telling us about them putting you through some cardio stuff in the mornings, <laughs> which could be quite tough. Yeah, he makes us like run laps all around the hockey pitch for like 20 minutes and then you get a five minute break and then another 20 minutes and then on on and on. Wow, sounds harder than running that, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a boot camp because they haven't been able to have normal training and certainly normal, normal matches through this period and Isla wasn't able to go. Um, so this is really kind of her starting back uh, in the school holidays and they had it every day, so five days a week. 10 a.m. till 4.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. with an hour and a half for lunch. Um, so it's quite full on. So we decided because Isla was just starting back gradually, she's kind of gone Monday, Wednesday, Friday to have a day off in between because it is quite intense. Yeah. yeah, to ease back into that. And we'll talk about um, your cancer diagnosis and go into like the treatment and the effect that has on you getting back into your sport and exercise. But I'd love to start with you, Isla, because you are the household name here. Um, and a lot of runners and people around the world know your mum, obviously, for being a former world record holder for the marathon. The last time I saw you, you and your mum, Paula, were flying off at the start line of the Durham Run Festival. And I was chatting to Lewis the other day and we were saying that we were chasing you both all the way around and actually never, never caught you. And what an incredible day that was, by the way. And I think that was back in 2019. So I just wanted to ask you before we you know, get into the this podcast. But is some running something that you enjoy or that you do because you have two super speedy parents? I I do enjoy it, but I think sometimes I think I would enjoy it more if I didn't have like my mum who did it and then my dad who coached. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I think you she struggles with um the the pressure and the expectation that, that people put on just because her parents did this, then she's expected to to just be be naturally great at it, which I think she, on the one hand, she is, but that added pressure, especially as a teenager, I think it is quite tough um, to cope with, isn't it? Yeah. And they, they do silly things here, like they'll call her out on the line. So she'll be lined up and they'll be like, oh, watch out for this Isla Lock. And then they'll give the whole resume. And it's not really fair when she's just lining up for a race. So I think that's why probably your favourite races have been the ones where they don't know who you are. Isn't yeah. It? Sometimes they'll even call my mum up to the podium to give prizes. And it's just like, I kind of want to have like a day when it's for me. Opposite with my brother. He enjoys it. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm really, really grateful, but sometimes he, I just wish. That... He, he's younger as well, though. I guess. So who's most competitive out of you and Raph? Me. Are you? Love it. <laughs> I'm, I, I think I'm more of a sore loser. Well, no, but you, you're not. You're just very, she's very, very competitive in all things, not just in sport, kind of in everything that she does, apart from cleaning up her room. Um, whereas Raph is, is really, I mean, I can remember Raph's first race and he was only really small. It would have been about seven or eight. And he was literally just running along smiling. 
And Gary shouted out to him, can you run any faster? And he was like, yeah, watch this. And then he just took off. So he wasn't really bothered where he finished in the race. He was just quite happy, just enjoying it. Now he's starting to kind of understand about racing and to get more competitive, isn't he? Mm. And he does get competitive. He does a lot of different sports. He does a lot of trampolining. Oh, nice. And backflips and things like that. And he's off on his scooter right now. He wants to do karate. Yeah, he wants to do karate and judo. Yeah, and I think I saw in those um, the Family on Track Instagram stories that Raph never stopped moving during that period of time. He, <laughs> Which is... His teacher, he has to sit down in class. Like, the teacher has to keep her eyes on him to make sure he doesn't just stand up. I know, she takes away his chair. Yeah. She takes away his chair, so he has to kneel. He came home and he said, my knees are sore. And I said, well, because the teacher made me kneel up all day because I was bouncing on the chair too much and tipping back on it. So, <laughs> is yeah. that what happens in France? That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to just move on and talk about, so recently, Isla and Paula, you both shared Isla's diagnosis for the first time publicly um, with the Sunday Times. And Isla, I thought it was such a brave and honest article. And in the article, you spoke about feeling like you were one of the lucky ones and that you wanted to help others recognise the signs and the symptoms of cancer so that people could get diagnosed earlier and get the support they need. So let's talk about the last year and what you have been through. So how are you feeling right now, Isla? Um, I feel way better than I was. I'm sleeping better. I'm not as tired. I can run better. I'm just, I guess, more like awake, mm -hmm. if that makes any yeah. sense. No, completely. Yeah. But even then before you're, you were going through the treatment, or do you mean since the treatment? Because there no, was a time before the treatment as well where you were still really tired. Yeah. It? And so... Yes. Like, you said that I was just being like a teenager. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's one of the things I've struggled with is, is that guilt. How did I not realise sooner? Um, because the, the signs were there. I mean, she won the regional cross-country championships in February, just before we went into lockdown. But even then you were saying you'd, she would get stitches when she was running. Um, and get stitches quite a lot. It was more that, like I felt something. Yeah, and that was press later. against my bladder. That was during lockdown. Um, during lockdown, she was running every day, but she didn't want to run with Raph and I. She just wanted to run on her own because she said she was just, her tummy was just hurting her. Um, and then one of the things, I mean, she was sleeping in a lot, but Isla's always liked her sleep and still <laughs> likes her sleep now. Um, but it was really like almost midday before we could get her out of bed in the morning. So looking back, we I probably should have realised from that. And then little things like she was racing in the summer um, up and down the pool with her brother, seeing how many lengths they could do underwater. And she said to me, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not really as fit. I can't go as far underwater holding my breath as I used to be able to. Uh, and I never realised then looking back now, it's probably because the tumour was taking up space so she couldn't fill her lungs as much um, but again I was just saying oh maybe it's just because you haven't been doing as much sport because of lockdown um, and just trying to I guess looking at different things and then you also had a lot of tummy aches didn't you a lot of pain, yeah. pain, really painful periods. Um, and, and did you Isla feel like they were you know you were just going through a phase or did you feel like at one point did you get to a point where you, you just went this isn't right? Um the, the point where I realized that I was at a friend's house and I was I had my period and I went into the bathroom because I felt like my stomach really really hurt and I was on the floor in agony and I had the door locked and I was in agony and I like everything was blurry and I like almost blacked out and it was really bad and I was just 
then I felt that this wasn't normal. Yeah. And, and like you say, initially, that could feel like period pain and some people have it so bad. So it's really difficult to look at those signs and think it's cancer. And especially at the age of 14, like the age that you are, that is the last thing that comes into your head. And, I, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 24 and I didn't, you know, I had very similar so signs and symptoms that I didn't recognise were anything to do with didn't think it was the C word and just didn't put them, I put them down to a bad Nando's or, you know, just feeling more tired with work. So it's really, and I think, I know Paula, you said about feeling that guilt, but actually it's very common for those symptoms to just go under the radar a lot because they can often be different things, can't they? Like you don't, not everyone jumps to a cancer diagnosis. So when did you go and actually go, this isn't right and you went to get this, like get it checked out? So if we look back at the timeline, that I was talking about when the periods were getting more and more painful because they were painful from the start. Um, and again, we kind of look back family history. Mine have always been light and not mm. painful at all. But my mum did have very painful ones and Isla's grandma um, and Gary's sister have had very painful ones. So we kind of chatted to them. We thought, OK, maybe she just follows that side of the family. Um, but that one was was bad and it went on a long time, didn't it? Because I remember you freaked out when we were at the um, stadium because it started oh, yeah. again um and it did keep dragging on it was so just we were really at the irregular room. it was like i would have it for seven days and then two days later i would have it for another four days and it, it was just like bleeding all the time yeah, yeah and so it was always a worry then and then immediately after that diamond league we drove back we drove my mom home to the uk and we had to do kind of shut in our house because we planned to spend the weekend with her. Um, but the way the, the, the restrictions were then, we weren't allowed to go out. Um, and um, you were really, really tired and kind of sleeping all the time. She didn't really want to, to do anything. Um, and then when we got back home, she started getting black blood. And so that's when I, that was, I guess, the only, time we really lost time because I wanted to take her to the doctor straight away my sister-in-law uh, who's a doctor I spoke to her on the phone and she said no it can be quite normal just make an appointment with a pediatrician so we made an appointment with the pediatrician and we went the next week to see the the pediatrician and when she examined her she felt the mass straight away uh, and I could just see on her face it wasn't good news um, but again I'd no, I never imagined it was cancer I just thought it didn't look good um, and she said, you have to go for an ultrasound scan the next day. So we went for that ultrasound scan. And then when we were in the ultrasound scan, the lady just said, look, I can just see a, a huge mass. You need to wait here um, and then call your pediatrician. So I called the pediatrician. She said, go straight away to Nice and um, to the Children's Hospital, which is one of the top ones in France. So we went to Longval that straight away. We had to get COVID tested going in. And then they did the whole barrage of tests. And even then, I sat in chatting to the lady who was doing the ultrasound scan. And she said, look, I just can't see any of the other organs because this mass is just blocking everything. So we can't tell you what's she okay and what's it, not. It was have like liquid bits and then solid bits and it was just yeah and that was what threw us when she said it was kind of liquid and then other bits and then I said well I'd had a dermoid cyst in my ovary um back in 99 so I was like um 26 or whatever um and when she when I said that she said oh this could be something like that so I think we were still thinking it was kind of some kind of benign thing um yeah. but then 
they came and saw us later that day and said, no, you can go home, but you've got an appointment with the um, paediatric oncologists at the other hospital the next morning. So that was when it kind of started to dawn on me. But I think I was still kind of thinking it would be, it might be something else. And I definitely didn't want to to say to Isla then because we had no idea what type it might be. Um, and then when we went back the next day, the doctor was really good, wasn't she? I mean, she examined yeah. Isla um, with me there, asked us a lot of questions. And then she sent me out the room to the waiting room and I talked to my dad on the phone. And I was like, oh, I think it's just a, I don't think there's anything actually wrong with me. I just, I think it's, I didn't really, I thought it was just a big fuss at mm. the point that it, would, it was maybe, I didn't even know. So then when I went in to the office and I saw my mum crying, I was like, uh-oh. But she was crying a lot during, like, the days. So I was, like, had mixed feelings on it. And when I finally sat down and she explained to me about ovaries and cancer, then I started to cry. And then it just became... And then I had to go down and get, like, an MRI and everything. Mm -hmm. And and at that stage, Isla, did you know what cancer was because actually like in terms of you would have heard of it but did you know what the what you know did you have any idea of what you were going to have to go through next I I knew about chemo and I knew about losing my hair that was like one of the main questions I asked her and I don't I knew like all the cancer and like chemo and all of that but I didn't think it would be as like how to explain I didn't think I would have to stay at the hospital for like uh six days and get it every every single day I thought it would be less than that I think uh, because um Isla's grandma had uh, breast cancer um back in 2008 so I think you probably thought from what granny had told you it was just like a day trip to the hospital and get the chemo and come back but the way that they treat the the children's cancer is, is probably a lot more aggressively but they also respond very very well but mm. it, it was it was really hard wasn't it and you had no idea so we had three rounds um and it was six days in hospital because it was a five-day treatment phase plus a um 24-hour flush and then we would go back for two more um so there were th- one of the chemo drugs was a three three-week one so you'd have it, that would be, we would have on day one that we stayed in and then the other two all the way through. And then that would repeat again on day seven and day 14. And then they would give her time off um, to recover and for the white blood cells to come back up. And so those three, I think the first one, she didn't really know what to expect. Mm. The second one was hard because you know what you're going back for. And I would like there. dread it. I was wishing in my sleep, oh, I really, really hope that my white blood cells were low because <laughs> mum would be oh no your bl- white blood cells are too low we can't go back in. and I would be in my head wishing yes <laughs> I don't want to go back yeah it's really yeah. interesting that isn't it because that's Did what you- I found hardest I think because I kind of brought the sports preparation mentality to okay this is just something we've got to train for we've got to get through it stick to the plan but you can't stick to the plan because if the white blood cells don't come up, then the plan is just on hold. And that was the time that I found really hardest. I was probably most annoying. And, and yeah, difficult. you kept on going, oh, take your Emmy fix and drink this, get your white blood cells up. And I was like, I don't want to get them up. 
That's really interesting, the mother and daughter relationship, because actually we haven't, you know, you don't hear enough about what the mother goes through. And then if you're the daughter and what you're going through in treatment and how the difference in thought process is like, mum, you're annoying me now. I don't want to drink any more of this. But yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's fascinating, really. And and I look when you I always think about when you people start their treatment. So. I've you know I've been there myself and started very aggressive chemotherapy and I'm wondering what did you think at that time or did you just um think I'm just going to get on with it or were you thinking about the end point or were you just thinking take each day at a time this is what I've got to do now I would no I feel like the first one was rather easy in a way I would nothing had really really happened yet so I still had my hair and I was like I still had the lump and it, I was just getting started and I didn't, they told me, oh, you would feel sickness and everything. On the first one, I didn't really, really feel sickness at all. The first few days. Um, but how would you? Yeah, no, I think the first one, it was much better, but it did take you back. I think how, how tired you felt with it. Yeah. Didn't it? It was the the last few days of the first one i like wouldn't eat anything except like dried seaweed <laughs> that was really? it dried, yeah. is that something you like cuz you craved it was it or yeah i craved and the other ones all like lemon that was what helped completely <laughs> when i was feeling nauseous I would just literally bite into a lemon. It was like lemon juice on everything, wasn't it? We yeah. had to kind of, because that's also, that was probably where I really annoyed her too, but I can't bear it because in my mind, food helps you, is fuel and helps you train and helps you run well and helps you stay healthy. So when they don't eat, it freaks me out and I, I really can't handle it. And Gary's like, just, it's fine, they'll eat when they're hungry. I'm like, no, no, they need to eat to be healthy. And so it really bothered me that she wouldn't, eat and she couldn't eat anything and we were trying all sorts of different things sometimes she would just say food and I would just want to throw up and I was like no don't mention <laughs> it just don't listing it. things that she normally loved to try and get her and, and then they told her she couldn't have sushi once her <laughs> white blood cells dropped so we had to like order in loads of sushi the first time so that she could <laughs> just have it that time and then not um wasn't allowed to have it after that and then was it about day six five or six a friend of mine called um, from Monaco and she said, do, do you think she could eat one of my homemade pizzas? And she just sat up and she said, yeah, I could. So she made it, bless her, and she put it in a cool bag and drove it to Nice, brought it in, and then she wasn't allowed in. So she sat outside with me and Isla just ate it all, every yeah. bit of it. And that must I was, have been good homemade pizza. <laughs> I was so relieved to have a friend who would do that and to actually just see that that she could could eat something. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of got wise through the the stays to the fact that she needed lemon juice on everything, types of food that we thought about in advance, what she might be able to eat. So I'd literally just go in with a big freezer bag um, full of things that she might be able to eat through the whole time. It was like... The meal I had the most was probably rice with salmon and then, like, just lemon. Lemon all over it. And then also sometimes you had the pasta that I went out across the road. Yeah. Some some just plain pasta with, like, a pesto sauce on Mm. it, wasn't it? Do you know what? You're bringing back memories for me and my mum there. So my mum did exactly the same, the cool bag in the hospital. And actually (laughs) pasta and red pesto was my go-to. And actually when, when you say about fuel in the body, and I completely agree, you know in terms of put it right good food but I spent most of my time eating Doritos ice cream chicken soup and Dr Pepper because I couldn't eat anything else so it is interesting listening to that 
even mm. like when I was going through chemo, mom, you would have like tons of dark chocolate just in cupboards stashed everywhere. And I- <laughs> that's keep me going. <laughs> Before I would love like the dark chocolate that my mom bought at the shops, but it, during like the chemo, I didn't even want to touch it. Mm. It just like made me feel sick. No, she could- and then one day the nurse suggested kiwis, didn't you? And she said that Isla could um, could have kiwis, but because um, and she thought you might be able to eat it. Uh, and so then I went out. So, but I was running, and I just had my credit card in my back pocket, and went in and just bought kiwis in the shop. But I wasn't thinking because the nearest shop was like a couple of miles away from the hospital. Mm. So then I had to run back with like kiwis in each hand. <laughs> I bet that was if somebody got a photo of that, that'd been brilliant. <laughs> So I was just going to ask you as well, Isla, what did you think? So going through surgery and chemotherapy and spending a lot of time in hospital, it's not just a physical, the physical knock on effect. It's actually a lot mental as well. Like it can, you know, it can be incredibly tough and especially at your age. So the later we go on in life, you know, we've had a lot of learning and experience and we've, I always say we've kind of formed our foundations and you're doing that right now, let alone going through a pandemic and also being diagnosed with cancer. So what did you find in particular that possibly helped you to to cope with what you've been through and were your friends supportive um, when you were going over the last um, year? Um, definitely my best friend, she was like always there. She would come over to my house and we would keep our masks on and we would just talk and what actually we did do, and it's kind of weird, but we, we would do makeup and we would just like play around with like colors on a palette and we would just do different looks on each other. And it's something we still do. And it's, we did it a lot, and I feel like that also helped a bit. And That's she amazing. Say, so Matilda watched um, Alexa and Kate, didn't she? So she, she, no, fa- that I did it not. No. Okay, I think it helped her. Yeah. She watched um, a Netflix thing, I think, about a girl supporting her friend through through cancer, and and she said it really helped her to, to kind of understand yeah. things. But it also, like, she would always call and always text and she would understand if I didn't, like, text back straight away. And she was always kind of, like, there for me. So that just really helped. What and- was difficult was we couldn't move. So we only found out. We only got Isla's diagnosis on the Thursday and she was supposed to start back to school on the Monday. So at that point, we tried to move her best friend into her class so she would have some kind of contact in the school class and they were going to put it through and then the head teacher vetoed it uh, at the last minute so they're not in the same class but we were able to find other people in the class because that was one of the things that was really difficult was just kind of keeping some contacts with her class because she didn't want to share why she wasn't there but obviously she wasn't in the classroom Mm. And for a while, there was the kind of COVID excuse. Um, But after a couple of months, that one didn't stand anymore. Um, And so people started to ask, uh, and it was a bit intimidating. So her first day starting school was actually January after Christmas, and she missed the whole of the first um, trimester. Yeah. Um, So that made it hard, didn't it? Yeah, and I just walked up with my best friend, and I just, because she's on a different floor than me, so she's on the sixth floor and I'm on the fifth floor, and I... I didn't like my two best friends. I didn't want to leave them. I was every time they would come down the stairs to come see me in between like the in between the classes. Because they're, they're like your safety blanket, aren't they? And they like it is really difficult because 
I always think that people don't understand what you've been through. It's hard for them to understand and see and you change, you know, that you think one of the hardest things is losing your hair. And I can really resonate with that. And I think a lot of people really struggle with that. Even some people more than actually being diagnosed with cancer itself and the treatment they've gone through, losing that because it's your part of your identity, isn't it? And yeah. yeah. I feel like the only time I... The first time I really, really, really cried during the whole thing was when I lost my hair. I, like, cried my eyes out. Yeah. And then sometimes I would cry in the hospital because I just wanted to go home. I didn't want to stay here anymore. And how did you cope, Isla, with losing the hair? Was it just a case of I've just got to get on with it now or was it always a struggle or...? Uh, Like, the first questions I asked the doctor when she told me about cancer was, like, what will happen to my hair? And she told me that there was, like, a sliver of hope that, like, it could stay. But it was, it wasn't very likely. And I just, I feel like I kept on to that. And I kept on thinking, oh, it might not, it might not go. It, like, it might stay. So I feel like I was a bit in denial about it, too. And where it, like, it was just one night after a shower and I was just brushing my hair and it just started to, like, come out. So then I, I just, even then I was still in denial and I was like, oh, maybe it's just like a little bit and it won't fully come out. But it just, yeah. I don't know. And yeah, and I think a lot of people listening will completely, you know, will understand have also been through it yourself and I can actually say Isla I've you know I lost I did exactly the same I lost all my hair I lost my eyebrows and eyelashes and I remember taking it out in clumps and looking at the um looking at the sink and thinking oh my gosh this is happening but my hair is a million times better than it ever was before now it's grown back so <laughs> I've been I, on even, the- I even keep in a box so each time I brush it it would just I just put it in the bin and then one day I can remember it was like a weekend and I was up at the house and I took a bit of sellotape and then I kept like a bit of hair and I just put it on the sellotape and it's still in my room in like a box oh that's yeah so you've still got that there and that's and you've been well you rock a wig though you look amazing in it when you've I've seen a photo I I wore my wig so much even to the point where we went to South Africa um a couple of months after I finished my treatment and I wore my wig most of the time, but it got too hot. And I remember we were staying in somebody's Airbnb and I put the wig on the in the bathroom and hung it up. And they had the little granddaughter and she'd run into our apartment and she was like, what is that? <laughs> and I was like, it's my wig. <laughs> but it just kind of summed it up in terms of it's like, it kind of was like, yeah, okay, I get that now. And it just made, you know, a really tough situation quite funny in the end. And, it, it, yeah. you know, that bit of humour was quite, yeah, was quite important, actually. But um, with my friends, I can make jokes about it. And I can just say, oh, yeah, why are you floating your hair in front of me? And I would be like, oh, funny with it. about for you and the hair mask. Yeah, it was really funny. I invited my two best friends over for my birthday. And we opened my presents at midnight. <laughs> And I opened my present from her and it was like a hair mask. And I said, oh, thank you. And she was like, Theo, is this a hair mask? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, Theo, there's no hair. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And the poor kid was horrified. She just hadn't thought. I mean, it wasn't just that. She'd got a whole bag of things from Sephora. And there was just one hair mask in there. But she just hadn't thought when she was putting it all together. And then when Isla opened it, she was like, 
I don't have any hair. <laughs> and, like, oh my God. and I guess that that shows Isla the importance of having that support crew and network of friends in terms of even if just you know you two friends who you can rely on and laugh with and just to make things feel a bit normal um was that just so important to you going through yeah really important like I would go for lunch with them like they would have a lunch break and I would just meet up with them and go to lunch with them and just like talk about what's happening at school and loads of stuff and it made me feel m- like more connected yeah I think just to have that contact was really important yeah. but I mean I, there were some funny stories like Raf was really sweet so when she when she lost her hair he, he knew how he could see how upset she was and he knew what had happened and pretty quickly I think the next day we went to me so and we got the wig and then she walked up to meet him outside of school oh, but I had a and she had a baseball cap on on top of it. But he literally, he just walked out and he looked at her and he went, wow, Isla, how did they stick it all back on again? Oh, <laughs> it was just really sweet the way he said it because it kind of made her feel like it did look like her. Yeah, that's and that's like, yeah, and that's the thing, what you feel, what you perceive inside your head in terms of what other people actually think and the reality of it can be completely different, can't it? And, yeah. you know, people do think, you know, look back at photos and they'll be like, that's your real hair even though it isn't yeah I have videos and me and my game would play oh my god me and my friend would play a game um so I would show her a video and she would have to it was pretty early on and she would have to say if it was my real hair or my wig and like there was one which it basically just looked like my hair yeah that's amazing and I think I was just gonna go on to because uh, people listening to this podcast actually and I haven't actually asked what what was what were you diagnosed with Isla because I know you know I've I've known but what what was your diagnosis a malignant germ tumor yeah. in my right ovary yeah I think it was yeah which one. I don't know which one that's um, good knowledge I, I know. no it's a malignant germ tumor definitely um and it was in her right ovary and it was 16 um centimeters by 13 centimeters by 11 um wow. by the time that she had it removed it was two and a half by five by two I think mm. it was it certainly it had shrunk a lot um and what was great was when they biopsied and did everything on the the tumor that they'd removed it was 99 percent dead tissue so the wow. chemo had shrunk it so much it just pretty much killed it all off um which was really great. I mean, we probably learned a lot more than we ever wanted to know um, yeah. about um, malignant germ tumours because I, I certainly I did a lot of research to try and understand it. Um, but it is just one that just goes crazy once once uh, they hit puberty um, and, and just keeps doubling and doubling and just growing in, in size. Uh, and it was huge by the time, well, mm. so, certainly that sounds to me huge in your little girl's tummy. Um, yeah for her feeling it um but I think it was picked up reasonably quickly and certainly like the, the chemo program that she was on with were three different chemo drugs but also I was like pretty self-conscious about my stomach so when it like started to grow and there was like a bump and I at first I was like oh it, it, I'm probably it's just probably just fat and I was like oh I'll go in the gym and I just never found the energy to go in the gym because I was so tired. 
And that's quite interesting. And we're going to come on to this, but actually how being aware of your body and doing exercise, you can notice, because I listening to what you said about the underwater swimming and noticing things, actually, when you were active, you weren't able to do what you were before able to do so that's when it's like the triggers of something might be wrong and actually mm-hmm. I think when people young people and anybody exercises you start to notice those trends and it's a really good way to spot if something if something mm-hmm. is wrong and I think we'll come on to um so just want to talk to you Paula about um a lot of people you know listening are supporting somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer or living with cancer or going through their treatment and it can be very difficult as um, a mother especially but for somebody who's to supporting somebody because actually there's a lot that you can't control and you don't live in Isla's head you don't know that you don't know her emotions inside out so you you know how did you cope with the diagnosis and what maybe what things did you use to help you because I know you spoke about running as one of them yeah definitely and I think that's absolutely you've hit the nail on the head it's because you're you're not in control of it um uh, and it's funny I used to remember people Gary saying that when he's watching me race it was so much harder than when he was racing uh, and then yeah. it made sense because when you're racing you know how your body feels you know what you can do what you're capable of and the person watching doesn't know that they're just supporting you as much as they can and um it was absolutely like that but worse because this was something much more serious than a race um but i had no idea really how she was feeling obviously i could see that she was wiped out and exhausted um but it's it's getting that balance right because i kind of wanted to talk about food to try and get her something that she could eat but then at the same time she's shouting at me no don't mention food um yeah. and just trying because as a mother you just, you just want to get something in her to make her make her better um and you want to be able to do it all for her, but you can't do that. that. That I think is the hardest thing that you can't, aside from just being there, which is pretty rubbish help really, you can't do anything physically to help. I mean, even silly things like in the beginning, because um, Isla was really worried because it's the ovary uh, about losing her um, fertility. And so she was also so young that kind of freezing eggs wasn't an option because we didn't even know if her eggs were fully developed anyway. And then you can only freeze them for 10 years and she wouldn't really want to be starting a family that that early anyway. So I even phoned up my gynecologist and said, well, look, can I just do something? Can I just donate some of my eggs now? And he just was really deadpan. He's like, she really won't want 46-year-old eggs. So then there's not really much that you can do either, but he was kind of really reassuring in terms of just explaining to me that I was able to then explain to Isla that this, even if um, for some reason the other ovary didn't function, her, her womb would still have functioned. And, and so she would have just had to use a, a donated egg, but she would have been able to, she would still be able to, to, to carry children. So I think that's reassuring. It's, it was still a worry. And that's why I think for her getting her periods back again, was a really, really big milestone in the recovery process, mm. wasn't it? At the same time, she didn't really want it for the hassle, but she yeah. wanted it to know that everything was functioning okay. Because before I, like, when I first got my period, I was dreading it. I didn't want it at all. I cried. I didn't, like, I would get scares, and I just didn't want it at all. And I realised when I didn't have it and I got it back properly, like, the proper period, um, that... I felt the pressure to have it because I like it was like a reassurance that the other one was working. 
Yeah, and I, I do hear that a lot um, when, you know, it is for younger people, it's that fertility issue that you don't, there's a lot of uncertainty over treatment and surgery and what's going to happen. And there is that pressure of periods coming back, but then that mini celebration of when you are one that they do come back and actually, you know, what that potentially could mean for the future, even at your age when you, you know, you don't want to be thinking about kids <laughs> just yet. It's still reassuring, isn't it? I got like I was waking up for school and I'm, I'm I hate waking up in the morning and I went to the bathroom before going to school and then I just saw red and I was like at the same time it was really really annoying because I was <laughs> yeah. about to go to school and I didn't want to go and but at the same time I was reassured again so and then yeah. also better because it was nowhere near so they're not painful now at all are they no, so, yeah. all. it's a completely different experience because of I, what happened I like to believe that, like, the first one wasn't even my, like, period. I, f I think it was, like, the blood from the tumour. Yeah. So yeah. I call it, like, my fake period. Yeah, because they, yeah. they didn't really know, and that's why uh, we should explain so why her, her period stopped. And when she went in and she started the treatment in September, they gave her an injection to stop her periods so they could um, determine whether the bleeding was from the, yeah, from the tumour or whether it was... From, from a period um, and it stopped straight away didn't it I mean no, it didn't stop it carried no, it on didn't. so it was the tumour um, so certainly there had been a mixed amount so that was why it was kind of stop start because maybe some of it might have been a proper one but there was also that going on at the same time yeah and Isla it's so brave and mature of you to talk about this because I think that a lot of people don't know that these things happen and don't understand mm. any signs of symptoms and actually the more we talk about this sort of stuff and what what it felt like before diagnosis and treatment it's actually we help a lot of other people to get earlier diagnosis to not leave it longer and to you know get the treatment they need and actually to understand what it might look like and yes it's really tough but you can also get through it with the right support and the people around you as well and I think it's yeah it's so great for you to be sharing this thank you <laughs> so I was, I was just going to ask um Paula I read in the Times article and I think it was a lovely um bit that you wrote about and this comes back to coping with your daughter going through treatment but you wrote that your dad taught you actually that the best thing that you could do as a parent is to teach your child to stand on their own two feet and actually that's a real hard test when they're going through treatment for cancer because you just want to wrap them up in cotton wool so it would have been incredibly stressful mentally ex mentally exhausting for you as well so what what if if somebody else was going through this with a child what would you tell them to think about or do that would help them cope a little bit better during this situation I think definitely not be afraid to have a, a support network around you um because I, I really needed that um I needed it to support me when I was in there so and my friends were great they kind of set up different whatsapp groups so that I didn't have to be texting 20, 30 people each day letting them know how it was going. I was just doing it to one chat, two chats, and then yeah. a family one, um, and just getting that support there. Support for other siblings as well, I think it is really hard because that was one of the things that I really struggled with. It almost feels like you're abandoning one child to, to look after the other one. Um, and it kind of, yeah. like, I remember a little bit when, when Raph was a baby, I would feel really guilty that Isla's story time would be getting kind of cut down at bedtime because I would be trying to get him settled and him into bed and kind of feeling that guilt then. And I think this time definitely I felt that it was 
it was almost like abandoning him there. He wasn't abandoned because he had his dad with him and he had a lot of support as well. But it, it really helped me that his friend's parents would kind of take him back to theirs after school to do homework together. So he wasn't without the support that he needed to have to get through it as well. And I think making sure that he understood and wasn't scared by what Isla was going through as well. So they kind of joked about it. He wanted to see the machine and she called it, what did you call it, Elmo? The the what? chemo machine, or did he call it that? Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was Matilda that called it that. Because they, when they were little, they used to have this little Elmo that used to talk and make noises all the time. And the chemo machine's kind of a bit like that, isn't it? It beeps all through the night with everything. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, making sure that he understood what was happening. Because when she first told him, she basically was still in shock herself. And she just got out of the car and just said, Raph, I've got cancer. Yeah. Um, huge shock to him. He and so then I, yeah, I know, was. but he, he didn't understand. But at the same time, he had been reading about people who died from cancer. And so he did come up to me very worried at bedtime. And it's just like, oh, mommy, Isla's not going to die, is she? And I said, no. No, the first thing he told me, oh. I was like, Raph, do you understand? And he was like, yeah, cancer is a disease that you can't get rid of and you die from. Yeah, I guess that's the perception, isn't it? And then that's really tough for you to hear, Isla, because you're go, you know, you're starting on treatment at that point. But Raph, yeah, it's the understanding, isn't it? That's and you don't hear enough. I don't hear enough about people talk about supporting the siblings and then young people yeah. going through cancer and then the parents because it, you know, like you, you've even talking about that. It, it's a huge juggling act for everybody. It is, and mentally as well. And um, I think because one of my big things is that I never lie to my kids. Um, yeah. But then when Raph asks me, like, is she going to die? I'm, I was like, oh, oh, my God, because I was never thinking like from the beginning, we're only thinking victory here. We're only thinking we're going to get rid of this. But of course, there is that tiny chance. And so in saying to him, no, don't speak, not at all. It was exactly what I needed to say to him. But it was still it was it's really hard. It's like well, we can probably talk about it on here. But it's like when you finally admit that there's no Santa Claus. Yeah, you um, <laughs> can talk about it. She really got mad because <laughs> she was like, but mum, you lied to me. And I said, what do you mean I lied to you? I didn't really lie. I just kind of pretended something. And she was like, no, you lied. And I was just like, yeah. Oh. And it made we did make it magical for quite a few years. <laughs> it was like, I definitely think that was a yeah. huge part of having that support around you and speaking to other mums. So I met another mum when we were in on one of the chemo stays uh, and she was English. And so I think just being able to chat and text, even though our kids have different types of cancer, just to be able to kind of support each other and, and someone else going through it and different experiences. Um, and, and her child was was younger, a lot younger than Isla. Um, and so the different difficulties as well. So whereas at least Isla could express to me what she might be able to eat, um, but the younger kids can't even do that. Uh, and yeah. to explain to them and they really understand kind of what the line is um, uh, and things like that, I think it is, is really, really difficult. Um, and just to exchange things that we learn as well. Um, so I had a peak line. Um, yeah. And so I had to go through the kind of process of what, because she really wanted to be able to shower um, and then trying to get the, the waterproof covers to be able to do that and, and keep it clean. Um I guess you learn, you learn so much, don't you, as a family of what, what you're doing and so many new, so much new information as well. Yeah, and um, I think like we definitely came to a decision pretty early on, didn't we, that 
I don't think Gary could have been the one coping actually in the hospital. Um, Because I just I just don't think he could have. He was the one who had to come in in the day and kind of be all jokey and cheer her up. And then he would leave and she'd be completely exhausted because it was almost like um, yeah. it did cheer her up, but it almost like took too much energy. So so then to, to see, I think that's the hardest thing as a parent, to see completely wiped, like no energy yeah. at all. And just the the paleness and, and yeah, just to see kind of, because it is a, it is a, a toxin really chemo isn't it going into yeah. them so you kind of got this horrible can see the chemo bag dripping in and it's like I'm like trying to say to myself it's going to make her better but it's actually going to make her feel pretty crappy as well um and it's it's that trade-off and I was just trying to to get her to almost like visualize the the dripping going in as killing the cancer rather than a toxin that's going to make me feel sick going in. But it's hard to do that when she's the one actually feeling it. And I couldn't ever completely understand how bad that felt and and how difficult it was to deal with. Yeah, and I think it's a case of, as well, Isla, did you feel like you were able to take... So you're obviously a very sporty family and it takes... Sometimes things just happen and you mentally cope with things because it's just part of who you are. But were you able to take anything, I guess for both of you here, from sport that had taught you, like, you know, that focus on the process, take each day at a time, like that that side of things. Did that help or was there anything in particular that you thought that was a game changer for me? I just kept on counting down the days so on day one I was like okay five more days to go and then as it kept on going down but I didn't really see anything with sport that much because that's quite quite interesting isn't it because I think on the flip side Paula I think when we've had conversations like you would have taken I'm guessing you took a lot of your coping strategies from what you've learned in sport because you've been through tough times in sport and this is like you know this will be your most toughest time as a family but there's definitely something you learned that you brought into coping with this yeah I think for me so many things but but then I'm a, a totally different end of my life really I kind of yeah. have all that experience and I, I've learned how much that meant to me so even before any of this losing my dad running was still a coping mechanism for that and running has kind of developed into a coping mechanism for me for lots of things it just makes me feel better helps me sort things out in my head and I think definitely through this but it was it was learning to be a lot more flexible with it because it wasn't like, when's the best time for me to do a run? It was, when is Isla okay? When can Gary be here? When can, does she want some space? Because also sometimes you did just want, she would just say to me, just just go out for a run now because I want to sleep. I just want to be on my own. But that was um, the, I couldn't go to the bathroom on my own. Yeah, that was the so, thing because I had to empty the, the urine, the chemo urine into the pot all the time. So yeah. we had to also juggle it that way. So I couldn't be gone too long because if she needed to go to the toilet, she didn't want her dad to be going and doing that. No, um, it was more trying to get And she didn't want the nurses, yeah, and just even to be able to to get there, trailing the whole big machine to to the toilet was difficult. So, yeah, it was it was trying to fit it in in the day when and sometimes it might only be a 20-minute run. Um, and that was when I was really grateful that I, I have a watch so she could ring me if I needed to get back. And I was kind of in the COVID restrictions anyway. So I was running it within a 5K loop, any a 1K loop for a lot of it, wasn't mm. it? So I was never too far away if she needed me to to get back. But I think being able to to get out and just to kind of only think about one foot in front of the other. And this is 
and kind of to put things in perspective and yes, we're winning this, but we'll be okay um, while I was running would help me then have more energy and be more supportive when I came back. Um, yeah, because that's key to look after yourself as well. And people, I think when you're going through the, you know, Isla's going through the treatment and you as a parent, that might not be your number one priority, but people from the outside often say it's one of the most important things because if you can look after yourself, then you can look after Isla and your family better. So, yeah, definitely. And it's it's already hard, I think, kind of with the interrupted sleep or through the night because um, the machines are beeping, bags are being changed, you need to go to the toilet. So you don't get uninterrupted sleep but so it helped me just to even sometimes not even run very fast just a small little jog but just kind of I guess yeah boost my immune system and feelings a little bit and I think definitely that that sticking to the plan really helped me and that mindset that you just build up plus also what you do in sport you're kind of working towards an end goal um, yeah. and so we were working towards the end goal and very, that's kind of I think what I was saying in, in ticking off the days yeah. It is that this is this is where we're trying to get to, um, and we're just going to get to that point. We're just going to take it one day at a time, uh, and get through it like that. And that's, I guess, what you do in sport. It's one training session at a time, just kind of building up the backlog. Um, and I think to the being fit helped her, um, yeah, less with the get fewer side effects from the, from the chemo a little bit. The fact mm. that you were you were fitter, yeah. And I think that's because I think when you're, you know, like your mum says, in terms of we learn, the older you get, the more you learn and take from the experiences and you'll take a lot from this experience, you know, later in life, you'll mm -hmm. some of the strengths and um, things that you've been through, you'll be able to hold on to them and, and know that they're going to help you in the future. And you're absolutely right. You know, the evidence around exercise cancer diagnosis is all about the, you know, the fitter and stronger you are going into chemotherapy, the better your um, outcomes are, but also the more you can cope with intense chemotherapy. And that is, you know, the research and evidence base is there as well as exercising or moving more and sitting less during treatment and then getting back into exercise afterwards and I was gonna we're gonna just come on to this I, I mean we love chatting I realize the time we're on here for ages which is brilliant but um do you feel like I guess from Isla and Paula from your point of view do you feel like people often say with going through cancer diagnosis and going through treatment that it completely changes your perspective on life and I know you're not many months out of your surgery and your treatment but do you feel as a family you're already a close family do you feel like it's brought you closer together? I mean, if your mum's, you know, your mum's putting your wee into the pot, that does help as well, doesn't it? <laughs> In terms of, you know, everything's out there on the table. So do you feel closer because of it? Um, I think I felt closer to my dad during the process. Because um, I guess we... Closer to, than you did to me or close, no, you no, got closer to him? We yeah. got closer to him. Because he was just there during the day when mum had to go and run errands and do stuff and Raph was at school so it was just me and my dad so we would like just chat and get along and before we didn't really just hang out if that made any sense yeah it yeah. was kind of a bit to like teenage and dad relationship <laughs> beforehand and then that kind of all just got put on hold because it does put it all in perspective and I think yeah he really liked that that time there um because then I was spending the time in the hospital when I came out I would kind of try and make up for it with, with Ralph and we're trying to get things done yeah. around the house as well so he would be with you a lot more through the day yeah 
Yeah, and you forget, don't you? Like, oh, it feels like a long time ago since I was a teenager. So you forget, actually, you're also dealing with wanting your own space as well as going through treatment and, and building relationships with different people and friends. It's, it's tough. Like, you've been through, yeah, an incredibly tough time and with COVID as well, the, with the pandemic. Sometimes yeah. my dad would just come in and I have this, like, kind of hotel kind of bell thing. Oh, yeah. And it, <laughs> He would just come in at 8.30 in the morning and just go ding, 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 ding. Okay, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And I just wanted to leave me alone. I didn't want to. I hope you've taken that bell home now and are using it to, um, they call it, we used to, I used to joke about with some young people that I um, I got to know during my treatment. We called it the cancer card. So you play, you play the cancer card every now and again. So if you need something, you ring the bell and then you do, hope the baby moves the you don't play that. She definitely did that. To like, my brother. No, you would do it. Like everybody would be sat down and it would be really close to curfew and then you'd go, oh, no, I really want some sushi. And then we'd all have to run out and try and get whatever. <laughs> I did have to say to her at one point, okay, like now literally whatever you tell me you can eat, I will go and get it or I will make it and we'll do that. I said, you know, this isn't going to last forever, so make the most of it because when you're back and you're healthy again, then you can make your own food if you want to be that fussy. I think you can use the bell for the rest of your life, Isla. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was just going to ask around, so as a charity, Move Charity, we support and inspire people to move against cancer. And um, it's actually amazing to hear that you're back playing hockey. And I think a lot of young people really, really struggle. So you were saying around the fitness and really struggle actually to get back into exercise and sport and movement because you've come through such intense treatment and chemotherapy and you've, you know, I, I mean, everybody's using the new normal because of covid as well the pandemic yeah. but you know you're having to adjust to a new body um and build back up slowly but what does it actually mean to you isla being back playing hockey is it an amazing feeling are you glad or are you finding it quite hard i'm finding it a bit hard but it's like i'm quite self-conscious so when i was going into it i was just off summer and i was like running around a lot and then when I was going through it, I felt like self-conscious that I was putting on weight. And then now I feel like I'm finally just going out and getting it like out of the way and doing more exercise so I can be like I was before. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. And did you get, so you obviously were treated in France. So wow. people who were treated in um, England and the UK, you get, you know, you're going to get different support and guidance. But did you get any support, physiotherapy or information about getting back into moving and exercise after you finish your treatment? There was there was this lady who would come in during the the when I was in chemo, and she there was like a gym room, so she was like, "Oh, do you want to come on the treadmill? Do you want to come do stuff in the gym room?" And I was just like. No, thank you. <laughs> <It was> so, <laughs> I love that. We had some funny experiences in there because they, yeah. they, they gave us a lot of support when we were on the chemo stays. So they sent around the first time. It was like, oh, my God, those clowns. These oh. clowns came in and they were like not really funny and kind of like embarrassingly and really incorrect in some of the was, things they were doing i tried to pull gary's trousers down at one point in <laughs> i bet he was fuming <laughs> but at least they at least we laughed about it and they that kind of one we did laugh at but sometimes it just weren't funny at all so she would be just like get them out and then they sent a psychologist round 
And she was like, no, I don't want to speak to them. I'll speak to you. And I felt sorry for her. So I went and sat down with her for like half an hour. So at least the poor lady did something. And then um, this lady used to come around to ask her to go to the gym, which was really crazy because she was hooked up to the machine. So she couldn't. And she yeah. said to me, I can't shower properly while I'm in here. Um, I can't really move properly with this thing attached to me. So why would I want to go and go on the treadmill? I'll wait until I've gone home and then I'll walk a little bit. Mm-hmm. So when you had the energy, you were doing stuff at home. But yeah. when she was in the hospital, she really was. And I kind of admired that because I don't think I would have been able to do that. But she yeah. really could just lay on the bed and just concentrate on getting better in there. Yeah, and, and I get and also that's quite interesting because most people your age may not just want to go and stand on a walk on a treadmill anyway so it's like looking at that age appropriate support as well and thinking you know if they put a hockey stick in your room with be able to hit against the wall you might have thought differently about it or some games or things yeah Mm. things like that you might have done Mm. and then the other thing was they sent around tutors um, to help keep up with the schoolwork but in that respect I think feel like Isla's teachers at her school were really supportive because they basically just said okay we'll keep you up to date we'll send through the work that has been done but please don't worry about it if you just keep reading and that's really all you need to stay up with we'll catch up with the rest later Um, And it was hard going back, wasn't it, in terms of Mm. getting concentration back, but not as hard as the few times when the tutor came in, into the hospital and tried to make her do some stuff. And And she just, it was, sometimes I would just say, oh, I I don't really want to do some work right now. I'm really, really tired. And they, I, they just kept on pushing it a lot. So they were like, oh, no, but you have to do this and you have to do that. And then it was like, I just don't. In the end, I had to say, like, no, I'm sorry, she's too tired. Can you just just leave her? Um, and then, yeah, we, we just kind of made a deal that when she goes back to school, she was going to have to work hard to to catch back up again. And, and she's doing really well. I mean, I think actually chemo's changed your maths brain, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was a benefit. She's doing way better since. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> Isla, do you did you find it important that you wanted to take control and do things in your own time when you felt they're right? Because you did you feel like actually no, I can make some of these decisions rather than have them made for me? Yeah, like especially now, like my dad pressures even you. You pressure me to like go to school without my wig, and I'm, sometimes I'm just like, no, I don't want to talk about it. I'm just gonna, it's because yeah, I get I get like really really self conscious. Like the first days I was going to hockey, um, well I didn't go without oh my, my wig because I wouldn't have done it in the car. I like felt sick. I didn't want to go in. I was just like, nope, 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 nope. I just didn't want to go in at all. And but it is a little bit like, it's almost a little bit like pulling off her plaster, kind yeah. of that step. And that's why she was like in the car, out of the car, in the car, out of the car. It's like, come on, you've, you've got to just, um, once she'd done it once, then each the days after it, yeah. you didn't even but think about it, But that's the hockey you? camp. That's different. And you and dad are pressuring no, me to do it at school. We're not pressuring you. Bro. Daddy is. Yeah. <laughs> this is the fair that we know it's really uncomfortable to wear a wig all day and to be struggling to concentrate. Plus now it's not just that, it's like the wig and the mask on all mm. day in school. It's it's kind of a lot and it is tiring when it's already tiring anyway. Plus you look amazing without it. Yeah, but I just prefer yeah. it. And it is, it is interesting that, because I think, like you're saying, Paula, you need the little, and I lose, sometimes you need a little push, because sometimes you look back and you'll thank your mum and dad in 10 years' time that they gave you that push, even though it doesn't feel right now. But I was actually on the same 
uh, wavelength as you in terms of I didn't go anywhere without my wig and even mm -hmm. flew and traveled because I, you know, I struggled with, I had quite long hair, I struggled with shorter hair. And actually it was, it took a little bit of time for me to just go out in a headscarf or just go out in a baseball cap. And it's those little steps that sometimes you need to take to get comfortable with that feeling in that situation and it just takes time doesn't it I think like you'll probably be doing more than you would have done two months ago now because of those mm. little steps I, it's also like in Monaco because it's so 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 small I feel like it's a lot harder too so I can go out in the streets now and without my wig but I still find it <laughs> she hides anytime she sees anyone she knows because it's so small there's just you're bound to see every time you go out somebody like you recognize or know so that's why I don't know maybe it would be different if we lived somewhere else I think I think as well it highlights to to myself and I think a lot of people that will be listening will be that cancer doesn't just stop when the treatment ends you are you know mm. there's a lot you're having to deal with six months a year two years down the line and just because you look well or people think you look great with your hair doesn't mean internally you feel the same way. And it's yeah. actually people still need the time and support during this time, not just when they were at a hospital, actually probably more support for the next few years after you finish mm -hmm. just to help you with those things that you're dealing with, like your hair, um, you, you know, in between stages, side effects of treatment, some long term side effects and getting your life, you know, back on track again yeah because I even like I do the math and I'm like okay in December of 2021 my hair will be like this long and I'll be fine and I just do all the math to try and figure it out to make it feel yeah definitely yeah. and you're not alone with that either you're not alone a lot of other young people will be doing the same and it's also just knowing isn't it like the advice like what do you do what do you do when it's at this point do you cut it a little bit to stimulate it to grow more and shape it or do you just let it keep because psychologically I think even though we know that probably to shape it will make it look better in the style that it is right now, for her to cut a little bit off it when she's trying to get it longer is is psychologically working against what she's trying to achieve. So I think yeah. that's that, isn't yeah. it? And then I think with the kids too, it's it's really hard to go back to the schoolwork. And that was one of the things that we maybe weren't expecting, that the the concentration is probably one of the last things that fully comes back, isn't it? Like even yeah. now. Um, it sometimes in class I would just like space out and like okay what are we doing because I don't know what we're doing and yeah, they call it chemo brain chemo brain yeah. don't they yeah yeah but I think when you're actually studying it's it's maybe even harder than when you kind of are just going back to work mm -hmm. as an adult but I feel uh, it's harder in like class because they'll be talking about something and then I'll just like okay just block them out I can't hear anything it's kind mm -hmm. of like that yeah, and it's really, really interesting. Like you say, they those are the things that people don't necessarily understand, teachers, friends, and because it's not something you see on the outside at all. And actually, to say chemo brain to somebody, do they believe it? And But it absolutely is a side effect oh, yeah, of treatment. Because yeah, one of the things that she has to do is, um, or that they do a lot in France, is, is, is learning poems, memorising oh, yeah. poems to recite. And she was always really, really good at it. Um, and then when we Where had to do first? the first one afterwards, I actually had to write to the teacher and say, look, she can't do this. She's not going to be able to learn. It was really long as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Really, I, really the long. first day I went back on the Monday, the first day that I went to school, uh, I was expected to do like like more than like 16 lines mm. of poem, like wow. a really, really hard French one. And 
you had to yeah had to write because not only was it remembering the poem it was also standing up in front of a class that she hadn't met before in a wig thinking are they going to be noticing that it's a wig or not all of those things so I had to explain all that to the teacher and then she was great she was really understanding and she let you do half the poem and just to her didn't she you didn't have to do it in the whole class yeah yeah um, and that, and that's like, like you say, those those things of getting up in front of somebody, or even going back on the hockey pitch, and and what you feel like, what you look like, it's all, yeah, it's all extremely challenging, and it's just, yeah, I think you know, Ali, you're so brave, and to share your story and what you're, yeah, what you're going through will really, really help a lot of other people listening. And you, Paula, from a mother perspective, I think it's not talked about enough that how mums cope, what they deal with, um, not actually, just the mums, the dads yeah, as dad, well, and yeah, like the whole support um around I think it's 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 as a parent it's it's the scariest thing you can deal with I think it might even probably be easier to deal with it yourself yeah. than to have your children going through it so that's I think what, it's that that's it's what that my grandma us. kept on saying oh yeah. I just want to do it for you yeah, yeah. for me and people, no, often, yeah, people often say that. So this brings me on. I'm conscious a little bit of time. I did <laughs> try and keep this a little bit shorter, but we, I think we love a, love a chat. So it's fine. We, this is the is a great time to do this. But being talking about the family, and I'd love for you to talk about Families on Track, because I think that it's just a really important initiative. And I've seen it in action. I've seen Isla flying around <laughs> the Durham <laughs> Festival, because I remember I was handing out the balls for everybody to see how much fun all the families are having. Um, and obviously, you know, we're a charity that support movement and exercise physical activity and know how important that is um, for anybody, not just people going um, through cancer. But what is it that why did you create Families on Track? And also, um, what is the plan with that? Is there anything this summer? Um, so, yeah, I think the Families on Track was an idea actually that Isla had um, for the first time because um, we ran a mixed like a relay Monaco, here in Monaco. And I ran 7K and she ran 3K and she That's loved amazing. it. She said, why don't we do some of these things more as, uh, so families can get to, to run relays together? So I started thinking about it. My first idea was similar to an Ekidin, so where the family would just kind of run that. But then obviously you can't abandon small children somewhere along the route. So that's when we started to talk about the loops. And I talked to Steve and Al about it. And um, they kind of brought their event management and design side to it. Um, and then it all came together in Durham in July 2019 um, as part of the Durham City Run. And that was just amazing. And I can remember we went the night before. And the kids had been on the history runs. Um, and they ran past the course and Isla came back and she said to me, mommy, it just looks exactly like I imagined it. And That's I had amazing. to go and tell Martin straight away because he put so much work into setting the course up and they really did kind of bring it to life for us. And that day, as you know, it just rained all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it didn't seem to spoil it at all. And I was just really blown away by how much fun everyone had and how much they enjoyed it and how much people were coming back. So, yeah, the fact that people loved it so much and then we were all really kind of gung-ho into the next one. It's going to be great. And then COVID hit and we couldn't really do very much, but we developed it. So we had more time to think on, plan on it. We did families on track at home during lockdown, um, encouraging people just in their own gardens to, um, I guess, just to, to think about in, innovating in different ways to, instead of running a K, we said, well, 100 metres might be 10 sit-ups or 10 star jumps, and you could just make it up that way. Because that was and the so, 215 challenge, wasn't it? And that was, no, I saw, was, 
215 challenge was later. This was the first families at home during the first lockdown. Um, and we actually, we did 5K in the garden, didn't we? Yeah. Just, just measuring it out. Around. But different families did different things, like with step-ups and things like that. And that was really good just to get people doing something that they could in lockdown. And then yeah. the 215 challenge was really born out of when we went back or when things started to go back, people, kids went back to school. Um, here, certainly, we saw a huge dropout in how fit kids were, like kids that were naturally fit had kind of put on weight during lockdown, just weren't naturally fit. And I think it was really obvious where there was a habit already in the family, the kids had carried on doing something, but where there wasn't, they hadn't done that sport. And then they didn't go back to the sports clubs again afterwards. So with the 215 challenge, what we were really trying to do was just encourage people as a family to get out and be active and to kind of bridge that gap, if you like, back to active organized sport for kids and for parents, um, but also just have some quality time. Because I think I felt like in lockdown, um, that was one thing that families did get was quality time sitting down at the dinner table together, a lot of quality time watching movies together, but they weren't doing sport together necessarily. They were doing their own time sport, but not yeah. as a family. Uh, and I think it brings families together. And certainly it's one of my favorite things. I mean, she doesn't really want to do it now as she grows up, but running with my kids is, is one of my most favorite things to, to do. Uh, and I still get to do it with Raph a lot. And I know that as they grow up, they won't want to do that necessarily. Although but, what happens um, with that, Paula and Isla, is you don't during your teens. And then when you get to my age at 30, you go back and you're like, I want to run with my dad. So, so you go back and want to run with your mum and dad. So then you I wish you were as you, you may as well not stop. <laughs> I don't want to run with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so is families on track, Ilo? Because um, your mum said it was, you know, one of your ideas of wanting to do Are you still passionate about moving that forward and the next event in the summer, is it, at Durham Run Festival again? Yeah, definitely. I feel like I would always ask her, like, as a child, like, oh, but are you going to have your own kind of, like, race? And she was I love like, that. Oh, maybe, but... Now and this it is, came into play, like, in 2019. Yeah, and that's what I was, I was telling Gemma about how when you went to see the course the night before and then you said to Marcus it was exactly how you'd imagined it would be. Mm. And do you think this is really special, and I guess when you come back to it again this year in the summer, hopefully, is that it's something you've created as a family, that you all have something very passionate about and that you can make, it, it you know, a dream come into a reality? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be hard in Durham, for me anyway, because my dad was part of yeah. our team. Um, yeah. So, sorry. No, so I, yeah. I think I'm going to find that hard. Yeah, and and like you said, it's something it's, that... It's weird, it's just, I talk about it all the time, then sometimes it just upsets me a lot more. But I think yeah. I hadn't really thought about it until you said that that's going to be the first actual one, um, because it will be part of Rumfest as well. Um, we will have families on track there. We'll hopefully be in Worcester. There'll hopefully be uh, a number of them kind of coming back and we want to bring it to Monaco too. But that one in Durham, it was, I'm really happy that we were able to do that with my dad. Uh, it, he was really funny that day as well because he actually practiced and he had a sore knee and he'd gone out and tried running a couple of miles. I said, but daddy, you only have to do 250 meters. Um, and then he did it, and then he did it another two times, didn't he? Yeah. he I, remember, and he said, I remember. I'll go again because Raph's really tired, and Raph wasn't really tired at all. <laughs> I just wanted I, to run again. 
I remember seeing your dad absolutely bombing it round, and I think I threw him a few balls and <laughs> getting you. I think you're near the leading teams, but like you said, it's an incredible memory that you know is part of your family and part of your DNA, and that actually you can then take forward um, in memory of your dad as well, which is and your granddad, which is a lovely thing to do that he would be very proud of. Um, so I think this is a good. So people can get involved in the summer. So it's the events of the North End at Run Fest Run. Um, yeah. And Durham Durham City Fest Run Festival Um, uh, and through the Run Fest Run, there will be, I think, three Families on Track events. um, That's brilliant. Going through. So, yeah, we're just trying to get that organised as much as possible. Hopefully also through the the schools, so building on the 215 Challenge, which was principally in Berkshire, but other schools could join in. We're hoping that by the time we get through to July, they'll have transitioned to it be through families being able to go to a measured course and run their own families on track, but socially distanced in their own time to actually being able to have some kind of families on track as maybe like a, a school sports day type thing. So instead of the embarrassing parents race and the kids races, the kids races they still have, but then we just have a family one. Um, I think that would be kind of, for me, that would be really a, a cool way to, to see it growing and to see families engaging in it and just building up that habit uh, of just getting out and running together as a family. Yeah, and like you say, those habits then come in and those things you learn from doing that and healthy habits and lifestyle come into when people go through difficult situations like being diagnosed with cancer. And we'll make sure we share all of the links in our podcast notes because we've shared we shared the 215 challenge and it was great to see so many people involved. So we've been talking for a long time now, <laughs> which is brilliant. I think we could all talk for hours. But I am I love finishing podcasts. So I definitely love listening to them when they have some quick fire questions at the end. Just to give the listeners a little bit extra. So I'm just going to ask some on-the-spot quick-fire questions for us to finish. So who is the most competitive member of your family? Isla. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Isla said me as well. I love that. <laughs> I, I think you're not very, very competitive. Raph isn't either. You're not, I, I am, I am. No, I am competitive, but in a channeled way. Yeah. So um, like, I'm extremely competitive, with my my running and even with work uh, and with trying to improve in commentating with school, I was really competitive. But I can play a board game, and I'll I, I'll lose that. Yeah, I'm, okay I'm okay with that. But what I can't handle is when if I'm on a team board game, yeah. and someone on my team isn't trying their best, I get really mad. Um, you can't <laughs> play any team sports. Well, I can <laughs> if people on my team are trying. But if people on my team aren't trying, it really annoys me. I'd love to do a family sports day with you guys. It would be brilliant. <laughs> or, or a Christmas day board game match. It would be, I'm sure it would bring up a lot of interesting uh, thoughts on that. Brilliant. So who's the best cook, mum or dad, Isla? They, they cook differently. Mum cooks. <laughs> I got in trouble last time. I... Dip- diplomatic now, aren't you? Who actually cooks all the be time? Honest. <laughs> but... Dad cooks like more out there meals. You cook the same thing. This is brilliant. There'll be some conversations after this podcast. Yeah, I think. Uh, maybe if Dad cooks a bit more often, he <laughs> also cook the same thing. You're allowed to be open and honest on this podcast, Paula. What do you think, you or Gary? Um, you're gonna say you. Yeah, well, I think because yeah, Gary has like two or three recipes that he does cook very well. Yeah. Um, and those are really nice. And I think he's very, very good at those. Um, 
but then yeah I think I just I cook more often and I don't think either of us probably because of the amount of time we spent moving around through training camps and things like that neither of us cooked recipes so it is kind of all just experiments and just developed and things like that so we can't really then exchange you can't really kind of I can't go away and say to Gary this is how you make this because I just do it as I'm going along yeah um, and yeah so I think it's different I think it's baking is definitely me because yeah. he can't bake at all but he does make he makes a really good or he used to when, when I first met him he made a really really good spaghetti carbonara Oh, nice. Which he doesn't really make now because we don't really eat curry that much, do we? Um, and then he, he does make a very good curry and egg fried rice. And like Thai curries, he makes really bacon good ones sandwiches. there. Oh, I think yeah, dinner time at your sandwich. house. What was that? What was that one? Bacon sandwiches. She really got onto bacon sandwiches um, coming out of chemo, wasn't it? Yeah. But because oh, they that. don't sell bacon in France. Yeah, it's really hard to find. Yeah. I bet dinner at your house is lovely. <laughs> Good place to be. So, I have one more question: Who wins out of either of you two over four hundred meters? If you had to do a four hundred meter race, I oh, I was confident there. You know? It was you, but I'm not sure right now it would be you. Raf came out of the track the other day and he's been doing 300 reps and he said to me is 54 seconds good I was thinking oh my god <laughs> he's only 10 and that that is quite that good is, yeah um, so yeah I don't know I mean I think she was getting to the point where I, certainly at my best I would have been quicker but now 400 meters definitely go to 800 and I would still beat her but I think I'll 400 I think 400 might either. just have me <laughs> back you. We'll you get that on in the summer. You by the summer, win. she definitely will. You would win in more long distance. Yeah, I would that's win what in I'm more saying. Yeah, get put Isla with a hockey stick on the way around, and you'll be flying <laughs> around. <laughs> you well, win. You couldn't handle a hockey stick if your life no, no. depended well, on it. I, that wasn't great at hockey. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant well I think we're going to wrap it up there so um, thank you so much for, to both of you for coming on the Move Against Health podcast thank you. It's, yeah it's just been incredible and thank you as well for being so open and honest because I know that that's often really hard to do and Isla I think you're so incredibly um, strong and brave and I think you know a lot of people can take so much learning from how you've dealt with things as a family and that honesty and that support that you've you spoke about as well so yeah you are both awesome and Isla you've absolutely smashed your first podcast by the way <laughs> so we are gonna yeah we'll end the recording there but thanks both of you again and um, hopefully we'll get you on again soon thank you, thank you. thanks Gemma wow we could have just chatted for hours there Thank you so much to Paula and Isla for this incredibly open and honest conversation. I do really feel so honoured um, to be interviewing them both. There is so much to take from this episode. Isla and Paula talk just so bravely and openly about the shock of Isla's cancer diagnosis, what it meant for them as a family, her experience of being diagnosed with cancer and going through surgery and treatment at the age of 14, and just her passion for wanting to share her experience to help others. It also showed how vital her friends were and their support was during this time and just how the effects of cancer don't just stop when the treatment ends. It was also so interesting to hear Paula actually talk about um, how just being how she felt just being there for Isla didn't feel like enough as a mother. However, I truly believe that just being there is one of the most important things that you can ever do. 
And I personally look back at my experience with my mum when I was in hospital every single day. And she, without fail, was at my bedside in hospital with that cool bag and that pesto pasta. And it's when you look back at these really tough times, you really realise how much you needed your mum, your dad, your partner or your whoever's supporting you through this and how really important it was just to simply have them being there for you. It's also so clear to hear Paula and Isla's passion for sport exercise and physical activity and how it's an important part of their life as a family and how passionate they are about getting people, more people involved in Families on Track, which is an incredible initiative and one that I have witnessed live. And it's so much fun for all of the family to get involved in and how this was actually a dream of Isla's. Um, and she wanted her mum to have her own race. And now that dream has been turned into reality, which I think is just awesome. So we are putting the links in our bio to Families on Track so that you can see how you and the family can get involved this summer. I really hope that you all enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. Please subscribe to our podcast. Um, that's what I'm supposed to say, I think. <laughs> Give us a review um, or a like and share it as much as possible so more people can see um, what we've done. I am off for a cup of tea now, a much needed cup of tea, and to grab myself some of this wonderful sunshine in the garden. So thank you so much for listening today. 